This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. Queen's University is divorcing itself from John A. McDonald, or his name at least. We talked to a professor from Rutgers about how we ought to be evaluating the virtues of our historic figures. Are further lockdowns the antidote to our collective woe? Not according to the head of internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital. And what might we learn from studying the bubonic plague? All of this starts now. Queen's University, they've renamed their law school building. Uh, it was a Sir John A. Macdonald Hall, but now they've decided after significant consideration and months of public consultation that that can no longer stand in the interests of diversity and inclusion and, of course, a checkered past. So uh, where does this leave us with all of these remnants from colonial times to the present where we see nation builders who are no longer uh, people who are acceptable to I guess, contemporary mores, if you will. Let's find out how this is being dealt with here as well as in the U.S. of A. or what is the best way forward. Uh, joining on the line is David Greenberg. He's a professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Professor Greenberg, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Glad to be with you. So against this filter of... Uh, applying contemporary values and mores to persons from another historical context. I mean, you're facing that as well. Jefferson, Lincoln, those statues are coming down stateside, uh, you know, notwithstanding, of course, Confederate statues and so on. But Lincoln, Jefferson, uh, these were, you know, founders and uh, emancipators and all the rest of that. Uh, is it fair to apply these contemporary values to that context? You know, I think the general um, approach of reconsidering, asking the questions, why were these people's uh, names applied to our buildings and institutions, why were statues uh, erected of them, is a very legitimate project. Uh, the problem I see is that there's really no principles or distinctions being made uh, amid the current clamor to erase the names, to take down the statues. So, for example, you know, I, I do see the logic in the American South where monuments of the Confederacy are all over the place, to taking many of them down, to renaming many of the places. Um, on the other hand, as you suggest, Lincoln, uh, Jefferson, <laughs> George Washington, you know, there are uh, elsewhere calls to take down statues of Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> There really is no limiting principle here. Everybody, even our greatest heroes, are deeply flawed. And so by this logic, there really is grounds for challenging anybody uh, to be elevated in, in, in this way or to be honored or recognized with naming or with a statue. So it's really the lack of clear-cut principles that uh, I think causes a big problem and, and leads to these confusions. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, maybe it doesn't require a critical mass of principled people or at least, uh, you know, sharing a collective grievance 
it's just maybe a handful here and there. Uh, in the case of the law school, I guess at the Queen's University, there was a petition that had a couple of thousand signatures on it, and they've decided that that was in the interests of diversity and inclusion the right way to go. But to your point, where will this lead us? I mean, it's not all black and white. There's some gray area. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, moral ambivalence included in all of this. Where's it going to Gandhi for crying out? What was the gripe against Gandhi? Well, Gandhi in his early years had uh, expressed some racist thoughts toward uh, Africans. Um, and, you know, certainly it's important to know all of Gandhi's life and, and thought and his ugly beliefs as well as his greatness. Um, but that's precisely the point. You know, there is no one who is uh, perfect. And once we start down this road, it, you know, Martin Luther King, um, you know, as close as we can get to an uncontroversial uh, American icon here in the States, well, he, we now know, was quite the slanderer. Um, and in the Me Too age, that doesn't reflect so well. It was also discovered some years ago that he had uh, plagiarized his doctoral thesis, or large parts of it. That certainly uh, doesn't speak well of him. But I would never suggest we should therefore do away with Martin Luther King Day. So we have to be able to tolerate the fact that great figures, even heroic figures, also had some flaws. Some of these were flaws that were common to their times. Um, some of them were perhaps more idiosyncratic or distinctive. But what I would ask is, what is this person's principal legacy? You know, what is it they were honored for? Was John McDonald honored for his uh, role in, in, in taking land from, from uh, the indigenous population? Or was he honored in spite of that? And I think if you frame the question that way, it, it, it's more clarifying than to say, what has this person does, done wrong? Is there any person or any group that is likely to be offended by it? You know, I'm uh, Jewish. Uh, Henry Ford was probably one of the United States' most notorious anti-Semites who published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in his newspaper. Should, the, should, should American Jews demand that the Ford Foundation change its name, that the Ford Motor Company change its name? Um, or, or do we understand, well, no, Ford is, his name is on these institutions, not because of his anti-Semitism, but in spite of it. Unless, of course, uh, we just wait a little longer, and who knows where this is leading. So uh, we might be premature in saying that there's nothing going to be uh, by way of a recrimination or blowback against Ford. This is the climate I, I, I'm sensing that we live in. Uh, again, David Greenberg's with us, professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University in New Jersey. You know, to your point you just made, too, uh, in fact, in this country, there was a national poll done by the public broadcaster about 15 years ago, and we cited Tommy Douglas as the greatest Canadian ever. Uh, this was a guy who came out of the prairies and uh, led, you know, the cooperative Commonwealth, uh, later turned into the NDP. Uh, but he introduced socialized medicine, which is one of the hallmarks mm -hmm. we like to distinguish. But he was a, into eugenics back in the 30s, you know. So mm -hmm. you, you know what? There you, right. there you have and it. As, yeah, as history progresses, as time goes on, the moral certainties that we have in one era give way to sort of moral reevaluations, and people who perhaps with every uh, good intention believed certain things uh, in one era, 
you know, now can be held accountable for uh, those beliefs today. But does that mean they should be utterly discarded, that they should be uh, protested? Or, or does it mean acknowledging the human fallibility that's present in all of us? And also that's present in our own day. You know, we have a certain moral certainty that today we know which criteria they should be judged by, and that if someone was racist or sexist or you know committed similar offenses, that that is grounds for you know banishment from the pantheon. But another generation, and maybe we look back, well, it it it, it, it was their role in, in corruption or their or their dishonesty. I mean, there, there's there's a a great many human foibles and sins, and it's somewhat peculiar that today's politics has focused on one important but narrow and limited slice of those sins. Professor Greenberg, then what do you say to these students? These are the ones that have brought up the issue and uh, given it resonance now. They're racialized for the most part. They say they're uncomfortable. It creates a toxic atmosphere on campus, and uh, it fosters a sense of exclusivity. So change the name. What a number of places have done uh, with, quote, problematic uh, namesakes is to educate, to put up plaques, uh, signage, uh, explanations about who these people were, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, Make it a project of understanding why the hall was named for John McDonald, um, what he did to deserve that, and also why his name has since become controversial. To, to, to have the name there doesn't mean that we are only esteeming him or that we are uh, forbidding discussion uh, of his multiple historical legacies. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder on the contrary it can be an opportunity uh, you know a teachable moment as as people say so i think there are ways that have been more consensual and more productive uh in other controversies to educate, illuminate, deliberate, um, rather than just to uh, make a kind of decision by fiat that uh, someone, someone has to, the statue or the name has to go. All right. And so uh, the leaders in academia, in this case at Queen's University, uh, might have dropped the ball, can we say? It, it seems that way to me. I mean, I I, I you know, was reading the language that they put out saying, you know, we need to create a safe space. Well, look, there's no one is being endangered by John McDonald's name on uh, uh, an institutional building. Um, people may not like it. It may be a reminder of unpleasant uh, aspects of the Canadian past. But why shouldn't there be 
those reminders. Isn't it better that we have those reminders than we sort of remove them altogether? Um, can't those reminders be an occasion for a continued injunction to wrestle with these complicated legacies? So I would say let's not worry about making safe spaces, making sure that nobody feels any frisson of uh, uh, discomfort. Um, we all live, we all should be living with an awareness of our complicated past and a little bit of discomfort about it. That, that's actually a good thing in my view. David Greenberg, professor of history, journalism, and media studies at Rutgers in New Jersey. We just look at the, the numbers every day. We get the new numbers, and uh, it's eye-glazing stuff, i got to be honest, even though we've seen, what, the second highest number of cases in the province since the inception, 821, uh, three deaths, 24,000 tests only, uh, you know, against that backdrop. We think uh, that maybe that's a lot of cases relative to the testing, where the high-water mark was in excess of 40,000. Toronto, 327 cases, Peel, 136. So we know that we're in this Stage 2 modified lockdown, and uh, York Region has joined us just recently, so they're into Day 2 of that. So how is that going to uh, help us going forward? I mean, in many cases, as I said earlier, it's like we're chasing this pandemic. Uh, we can never totally eliminate it short of a vaccine or some other panacea so we're just postponing it playing whack-a-mole and uh to what effect at the end of the day could it be more deleterious chasing it in this regard robert Sargent is the head of internal medicine at st michael's hospital in downtown toronto and uh, on the front lines for low these last seven and a half months he comes from a position of credibility as to how we ought to approach things going forward uh dr Sargent, good to have you on the oakley show good afternoon Good afternoon. Nice to be here. My pleasure. Uh, so are we going about things the right way? I mean, these modified stage two lockdowns in Toronto, Peel, York, uh, and more recently, uh, kids being discouraged from going out on Halloween. How do you see that in the grand sweep of things? Um, I, I don't know. I think you, you use the, uh, the, the term whack-a-mole in, in your preamble, John, and, and I don't disagree. It, it seems a little bit piecemeal. And, and to, be, to, be, to be fair, my, my perspective is all very much hospital-based. I am not a public health official. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not in the position of the folks who are tasked with making these decisions, and I don't envy them their job in making these, these important decisions about restrictions that are being placed on the public. Um, I can provide my perspective. I can provide my opinion but uh, that, that is not my, my area of expertise. But to answer your, your question directly, it, it does seem a little bit haphazard. We, we are told that this is evidence-driven, and, and I accept that on, on the face. I'd love to see that evidence. I think it would be great if, if um, you know, public health officials and, and Ministry of Health officials made that evidence available on the web or whatever so that we could all have a look at it and evaluate it. But... Um, yeah, the, as you said as well, the numbers are, are still high. Um, we're maybe seeing a bit of a plateau on seven-day averages, but, but the virus is still out there. It's still moving amongst us. All right, uh, then let me drill down on your particular area of expertise or your purview here. Uh, hospitalizations in Ontario reported this morning 274 hospitalizations, 72 in ICUs, uh, three deaths. So based on the numbers that we've tracked over the you know sweep of the pandemic seven and a half months now uh 
we're seeing the trend going up. Is that a significant rise uh, or are we better, you know, equipped to deal with those numbers now? Both. It, it is a significant rise, although the rate of increase is certainly less than it was back in, in March and April at the beginning of phase one. But they are going up. Um, having said that, I think we are better placed to manage these cases. We, we've learned a lot about this virus, particularly on the critical care side. We, we have therapies now, steroids. You've heard about dexamethasone. We have a much better idea about who needs to be ventilated and, and who can be managed without a ventilator. Um, we know the dangers of putting people on ventilators too quickly, leading to lung injury. And also the other thing that's changed, John, is that the demographic is different. In, in the first wave, it really went through long-term care facilities and, and was predominantly going through the elderly population, the frail elderly population, leading to higher morbid, morbidity and mortality. This wave, it's going through more through the population at large, through younger people, preteens, young adults, who seem to be able to handle this virus much better from a health perspective and typically require less hospitalization, less ICU admissions. So I think all taken all together, it's at least at this point, is proving to be less of a strain on acute care than um, wave one. Interesting you would say that. Okay, uh, all these variables in the equation being factored in, uh, to your point, because I know the Ontario Hospital Association had been uh, signing, uh, or or at least sounding, uh, an alarmist bell saying, you know, uh, we've got to tamp everything down, go back to a stage two lockdown because we're going to be overwhelmed. It almost seemed like that was the inevitability they were signaling. So uh, were they being overly cautious or uh, maybe just... uh, not really looking at how this thing was breaking out in reality. I, I think they were being prudent um, because, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is our hospital system, our healthcare system has very, very little wiggle room to begin with, COVID or not. Um, as I've said in a couple different forums, even today, you know, we, we were in tough shape coming out of last year's flu season in, in January with literally no capacity anywhere in our system. Um, and then to have COVID jump on us uh, in the spring when we typically get a bit of a reprieve from influenza-like illness or respiratory illness was a bit of a shock. So now we're moving into the fall when things tend to get a little bit busier and when we start bumping up against capacity issues, even in a good year, and now we've added COVID to the mix. So even though it's not a huge volume of patients, it is significant in that we don't have any wiggle room. And I think that perhaps the folks at the Ontario Hospital Association and other um, organizations were rightfully concerned about that and were sounding the alarm. I personally don't think that a broad-based lockdown would have changed the trajectory of this at all, um, but I can understand their view and their concern. All right, because they had cited at the low end, it was about 85% capacity in hospitals, and some were at 100, uh, if not higher. So as you say, entering the flu season and a second wave uh, should be uh, cause for concern as far as that goes. But, uh, you know, the ICU admissions, we were told early on, uh, this was a case that if you got into ICU, uh, it could be ominous. You mentioned that uh, treatments have improved. What we know about it now, uh, eight, nine months in, has uh, been significant insofar as that treatment's concerned. And on ventilators as well, uh, I guess we had 40,000 ventilators ordered, but uh, or 
quickly uh, whipped together people, you know, retrofitting their manufacturing lines, but those weren't necessary at the end of the day, or at least not as many as such. Uh, so tell me about the improvements, especially with ICU. Uh, why is it that people are not staying there longer? And uh, how are we not basically uh, putting them almost to a, a predetermined end? Yeah, so uh, this is another mea culpa for me, John. I'm also not a critical care physician, um, although I have spoken at length with my colleagues in that space. Um, I will say a couple things. Like I said, you know, improve knowledge and treatments, particularly around steroid therapy. Even how we position patients, I say the global we, in, um, in ICU, you know, laying them on their stomachs to be um, ventilated has proven to be helpful. Um, and also it's, it's the demographic, you know, Younger people have more reserve. They, they can bounce back from this. Sometimes it's a long and debilitating course, but they, they are, have a greater tendency to survive. If you look at the data across Ontario, what's different this time with ICU admissions is the length of stay, the average length of stay of people in the ICU has come down considerably. So that the average day, patient days, if you want to call it that, are much, much lower because people are getting better and people are leaving the ICU. When they leave ICU, they're still in hospital. They come out to my ward or the ward where I work. We care for them until they get their strength back and move on either home or to rehab. But the, it's, it's not just strictly a case of numbers. It's also how long individuals are in the hospital, how long they're in the ICU, sorry, how long they're on the vent, and what type of ventilation they're receiving can all have an impact. And in the second wave, all of those parameters look more positive. Finally, how are your human resources holding up? My understanding is you've been going at this uh, almost nonstop for the last seven, eight months, you know, uh, seven days a week. And the people who are staffing the hospital and uh, dealing with this, you know, just in general terms, is burnout an issue at all? It, it's certainly a threat. We're tired. I mean, there, there's no sugarcoating it. Um, we're really, really tired. Uh, and I, this is where I have to say all the positive things I can about our nursing colleagues. They have been champions from the beginning in, in all of this. Um, but, but they're tired. And, you know, many staff have kids who are going to school that are sometimes remote learning, sometimes in-class learning. You know, when kids get sick, child care issues become um, problematic. Um, and we're humans. And, and we do have limits to our, you know, our capacities. And we're, and we're also, we, we watch the news and we read the newspapers and we watch those numbers as well. And it can be pretty dispiriting sometimes when all that's being portrayed is, is doom and gloom in the end of the world. So that weighs on psyches as well. So I, I would say, you know, we, we still have some fight in this for sure. We're, we're ready for the task. We're up for it. But um, there's a general sense of, of fatigue and, and just wishing it would just all go away. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, you don't even have to be on the front lines to feel that way. I guess, you know, it's one of these relentless things that uh, keeps pounding away and eroding, uh, I guess, our sense of uh, indefatigability, let's call it that. However, uh, I really congratulate you on the work you're doing here at the hospital, St. Mike's downtown, uh, very familiar with the um, the institution. And uh, stay the uh, course and uh, fight the good fight. Uh, people are counting on you, obviously. I appreciate your joining us this afternoon and uh, giving us your perspective. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Robert Sargent again, Head of Internal Medicine at St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. 
Every day seems to be a COVID-19 story of some sort or other. And uh, the Halloween thing is still befuddling a lot of people and parents uh, wondering how they're going to deal with it. Their kids going out there, whether or not they might even be seen as super spreaders or uh, leaving themselves susceptible to picking up this drat plague. But uh, we'll talk about that when we do here in about uh, 17 minutes time. However, on the drat plague question... You know, it's interesting. There have been comparisons to past plagues. And uh, I was just reading an article that says the medieval bubonic plague actually picked up speed over 300 years. And uh, it spread across London, England around four times faster in the 17th century than it had in the 14th, when it wiped out about a third of Europe's population. So what's going on and uh, how might this inform the spread of COVID-19 and other such plagues in the future? Joining us on the line to help us understand this is David Earn, a professor in the, in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at McMaster University and investigator with the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. David Earn, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Hello. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, listen, uh, statistically speaking, I'm kind of interested that, you know, this determination was made that the Black Death, the bubonic plague, actually spread four times faster in the 17th century than it did in the 14th. How could you arrive at that uh, determination? Well, we looked at archival records of mortality going in the 16th and 17th centuries, so counts of number of people who died each week in London, um, and for part of that, uh, deaths from plague specifically. And by looking at the weekly numbers of deaths, we are able, with uh, mathematical and statistical methods, to estimate the rate of growth of the, of the epidemic. Earlier, uh, we had to be a lot more creative about how we were going to figure that out because deaths started being registered in London only in 1538. So to understand what happened earlier, we looked at last wills and testaments. Uh, so we counted up the numbers of wills that were written each day during each of the known plague epidemics in the 14th century, beginning in 1348. And from that, we were able to see increases in the numbers of wills that were written and estimate uh, the rate of growth there. And then we were able to compare that also with wills in the later times so that we knew that we were really estimating the same thing in the early and later epochs. Right. So apples to apples. Uh, and I guess uh, we're accepting that there was a reliability to those documents and statistics at the time. Well, I think... I, we're, there's a reliability because all we're doing is, is, is using the number of people who wrote a will on a given day or the number of people who died. And I think those are, are reliable statistics. They're not sampled in the way that we do now in the sense that not everybody who wrote a will or everybody um, who died would have been captured. But a big enough sample is captured that we can uh, estimate the pattern of growth. Uh, reliably, and that's what we're doing. All right, and so on that pattern of growth, like uh, when I said at the outset that the bubonic plague uh, actually spread four times faster in the 17th century than in yeah. the 14th century. I mean, you calibrate that in terms of uh, number of days where uh, the outbreak doubled, don't you? 
Yeah, that's, so that, that's the easiest way to understand growth rates, not in terms of the, the rate, but in terms of the time it takes for the number of cases or deaths to double. And so it was about, uh, it was much longer uh, in the earlier epoch, in the 14th century. So it took maybe six weeks for the number of deaths uh, or cases to double there, whereas it only took maybe a week and a half in the 17th century. So it's a huge difference. Yeah, and uh, 300 years removed, uh, you might think that maybe uh, the situation had been apprised that uh, this was what was leading to the decimation of Europe's population, and people might have taken steps to you know, avoid it or uh, mitigate it. But uh, what were the reasons then that it doubled much faster at four times the rate 300 years later from the 14th century to the 17th? So we, we, we can't say for sure what the reasons are for the faster growth, but we can speculate that a bunch of different things may have been involved. The most obvious is that the population density and the population size of London was much bigger in the, in the 17th century by about a factor of 10. There may have been only around 50,000 people in London in 1348 and more like half a million in 1665. And there would have been a lot more contact among, among individuals and, and that would lead to faster growth. There, the, there were changes in the climate, there were changes in the social structure where people in various classes lived in the city, um, and there were probably substantial changes in the numbers and densities of rats, which would have implicated uh, spread in the rat communities that then spilled over into humans. So all of those things uh, might have contributed. It's possible also that the bacterium that causes plague changed in ways that made it more transmissible, though we know from genetic studies that the number of genetic changes is very small over that period. And so that if, they, uh, if genetics were the reason, then it's going to be hard to establish that. The anatomy of a plague, basically the bubonic plague, is the context that we're discussing. Uh, David Earn is with us, professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at McMaster University and investigator with the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. So uh, taking from that, extrapolating if we can, because you were just saying uh, this was not human-to-human contact, but from rats and uh, pestilence, mm-hmm. what do we learn from the bubonic plague and its transmission that could inform us concerning COVID-19? Right. Well, I think one thing that's that's very interesting is that precisely because we know that this pathogen barely changed over these centuries, but yet we detect this huge difference in the growth rate, it emphasizes that the same pathogen can cause quite different uh, epidemics in different places or at different times. And so it may not be surprising then if COVID-19 grew much faster in one city or one part of the world than another. And that could be for all the same sorts of reasons that I mentioned before, population density or uh, differences in climate and so on. So it emphasizes that that's possible, even though it's the same pathogen. And so we shouldn't be surprised by those kinds of differences. We can also learn things from the methodology that we use for estimating um, the growth rates, because that can be applied to COVID-19 or any other uh, epidemic that's, that spreads uh, in modern times. And in fact, we're doing that with COVID. So we can uh, estimate 
rates of growth of COVID-19 in the various waves of the of the epidemic. And that helps us uh, understand how effective control measures are. So that's that's all very relevant for the present time. You know, it's interesting. You focused on London, uh, whereas in the 14th century, as I was saying earlier, about a third of Europe's population was estimated to be wiped out. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering if 300 years later, maybe uh, travel was more prevalent as well as population growth. Because right now, I mean, that's one of the considerations we have with COVID-19 and how quickly it's been transmitted. You know, community spread, but there's also travel. International travel is where this thing really took light, isn't it? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And travel, whether it was the amount of travel in the in the 17th century or now, is what spreads diseases from one location to another. But once it's there, uh, it's the epidemic in the region that really characterizes what happens. So it may be that um, that a plague could spread more easily across Europe in the 17th century than it could in the 14th century because of increased travel. But once it was in London, additional travel, you know, more uh, people coming in who are infected or bringing infected rats, if it was already there, would have been a very small effect on the spread of the disease once it had got going. And that's the same for COVID-19. I mean, it's really important if it hasn't entered a place, to try and avoid it entering there. But once an epidemic is going in the community, the numbers of individuals who are arriving who are infected is is a small concern. It's really, what's really, where that's very important is when you've got hardly any cases and you're trying to prevent an epidemic from taking off. Understood. Fascinating uh, that this has historical precedence of a sort, and uh, looking at the bubonic plague and how it didn't dissipate uh, over three centuries, but actually increased in terms of the rate of transmission. Uh, David Ern, I appreciate your explaining all. Uh, fascinating discussion. Thanks for it. Well, thanks for your interest. You got it. David Ern, again, professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at McMaster University and investigator with the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekdays from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.